0: It's so good to be here. It's so good to hear the conversations that are happening and to just hear the hum of joyful voices. So, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Have you ever felt like you didn't have your people? Like you were peopleless? if you know what I mean. Um, I felt that way before. I grew up in Guinea West Africa, and when I was 18 years old, I came back to the United States to go to college. And I went to college in Texas. And as you can imagine, Guinea West Africa is very different than Aveline, Texas. And so as I came back to Texas, I felt like I was a person um, living in her country as a foreigner. I felt like I didn't have... A people, people who understood me and who knew me. And thankfully, luckily for me, I had an amazing roommate um, who was from Brazil. She was also a missionary kid from Brazil, and we bonded very quickly. And then I was getting a Bible degree to ACU, and we met this group of women in the Bible department who became my people. We, we would have fun together. We would laugh together. We would go to movies together. We would do stupid things together. We would play games like Would You Rather. We would sing songs like Would You Love Me If. Um, and we would just be goofy and have fun. And after a while of hanging out and getting to know these, these women, I remember one day just being able to exhale and to breathe and felt like, you know, I have people. These, these are my people. They have my back, and I have theirs. And the advantage of having people is that you know you have someone who will advocate for you if needed, and, and you know in turn that you will advocate for them if needed. So I've been thinking a lot about this concept of advocacy this week, and I found this definition online that I wanted to share with you. I really like it, because when I say that word, we probably all think some different different things, but I found this definition online. It says, advocacy is a process of supporting and enabling people to express their views and concerns, access information and services, defend and promote their rights and responsibilities, explore choices and options. And the part that I really love about this definition is the first phrase in there, the advocacy is a process of supporting and enabling people. So in my own words, as I think of advocacy, I think of having a voice, I think of supporting, enabling people to be able to to have a voice, to be heard, to make decisions, to choose a path forward. And I feel like this concept of advocacy is definitely a biblical one. In Isaiah 1, verse 17, this is what God says to his people. He says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then in Proverbs 31, verse 8, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And this concept of advocacy in my mind is one of... Of engaging on behalf of the marginalized. Of being a voice for the voiceless. And this, it's this beautiful, beautiful concept. And there's a story in the Bible that speaks to this. And it's the book of Esther. So some of us may have read the book of Esther. And for some of us, the book of Esther is, is kind of new. It's, um, it's ten chapters. So it's a shorter book of the Bible. And if you like reality TV, then you'll like the book of Esther, because Esther is just full of drama, um, like it's full of twists and turns, and it's a fascinating story, so I'd encourage you to go back and read it um, this week if you have time. I'll give you just a brief history of Esther, because there's one specific passage in Esther that I would like to look at today. But Esther is a Jewish orphan who was is raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she lived in a time where Babylon had come in and conquered Israel and then and taken them off into exile. And then Persia came along and conquered Babylon. And so there were some Jews who had gone back to rebuild Jerusalem, but many Jews were dispersed amongst the kingdom um, of Persia. the the empire of Persia. And so Persia was ruled at the time by a king named Xerxes. And King Xerxes decided to host a giant banquet. And so he called... Um, all his military leaders, his princes and noblemen to come back to the capital for this banquet. And this kingdom, his empire, ranged from India all the way to North Africa. So it was this huge area. And he had many, many leaders. And so he calls them all to come back to the capital. And he hosts this giant banquet. And his purpose for hosting it is to show off his power, to show off his great wealth. And and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything halfway, and so this banquet is 180 days, um, 180 days of party, um, which, and they specified wine for everyone without restriction. Okay, So you can imagine this type of banquet, this type of feast that's being hosted. Well, as the drama unfolds, in the middle of this, he banishes his, his queen, he, he disposes of her and he is searching in the midst of this giant party for a new queen. And so he has his, his servants gather all the beautiful young women in his kingdom so that he can choose a queen. And I've at times heard this story described as a giant beauty pageant. And they all came before the king and the king fell madly in love with Esther. And they live happily ever after. Yeah, that's not how it. That's not how it happened. That's not the context of this story. Likely, um, as you read Esther, you see this giant gap between the people who have all the power in the story and the characters who have very little power or no power. In the story, and you see the corruption and the oppression and the injustices that are present in this system and in this culture. And so, likely, Esther had very little power and had no choice in the matter. She was a woman, and women in this time had very little rights, and she was also a Jew. And it, the, the story is very specific that she hid the fact that she was a Jew, which is indicative of the racial tensions. Going on at this time. If you can imagine an empire with the history of specific peoples conquering and subjugating other peoples, um, you can imagine the racism and the prejudices and the biases that are present in this culture. And in all this story, as all this is going on, um, the king decides to promote Haman to second in command. And Haman is is not the only villain in this story, but he kind of comes in as the big villain in the story. But um, he is promoted. And in a in a system and a culture where all the power held by very few, Haman is honored in front of everybody. And Haman relishes this power. He loves this position. And it's decreed that as he passes by, all should bow to him. And everyone did, except for Mordecai, Esther's cousin. And Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refused to bow. And not just once, but day after day. And this made Haman very angry. And um, there's several phrases in here that really stood out to me when his um, servants went to ask Mordecai, hey, what's going on? Why aren't you bowing? They came back to Haman and they said, you know, is this behavior going to be tolerated since he's a Jew? Like, he is a Jew. You know that, right? Are you going to tolerate this behavior? And Haman decides no, and he decides that he's going to kill all of the Jewish people in the kingdom, not just Haman, and not just Mordecai, though Mordecai was the one who wouldn't bow to him. And so Haman goes to the king, and he begins to weave a narrative. He begins to tell the story. He describes the people who keep to themselves, those people who keep to themselves, those people whose customs are different than ours, those people who do not obey the king's laws which is a pretty huge stretch if one person didn't bow to him, but yet all those people did not obey the king's law. And then in, in a telling statement of Haman's attitude, he says to the king, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. And they set a date for the genocide of those people. And I'm, I'm struck by the narrative that Haman tells the king because the way he describes those people shapes the story. The way people are described either humanizes them or dehumanizes them. And in Haman's case, it was definitely dehumanizing. And it begs a question for us today as, as we tell stories, as we hear stories, regardless of political views or religious belief, just as people, as we tell stories, do our stories humanize or dehumanize others? That's a really big question and pertinent question, I think, to ask in our society today. So Haman succeeds in convincing the king. And um, this date is set for for the destruction of the Jewish people. And so Mordecai instructs Esther to go to the king and be an advocate for her people. And Esther responds back to Mordecai saying, Hey, I'm not allowed to go into the king's presence unless summoned. That's punishable by death. And this is where we're going to pick up in the story this is the part that really stood out to me that I wanted to share with you today. So Esther chapter 4 verse starting in verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but if you and your fa- father's fam but you and your father's family will perish and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I love Mordecai's answer back to Esther. In verse 13, he says, Do not think that you alone of all the Jews will be saved just because you're in the king's house. It's this warning against detachment from her people. It's a warning against self-preservation when others are hurting. Because sometimes it's easier to distance ourselves from the injustice and the hurt going on in our world. And especially if we are in a place of relative safety or relative privilege, um, it's easy to just say, you know what, that's not me. Those aren't my people. And Mordecai warns Esther against that. And then in verse 14, Um, He says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He says, Esther, you're invited to participate in this saving of your people. You're invited into this journey. But if you choose not to, deliverance will come elsewhere. And that's because God is the one who saves his people. God is the one who saves his people. And then um, the phrase that that I've heard since I was a little girl, um, at the end there of verse 14, Mordecai points out, maybe you were, you were put in this position for such a time as this. The specific person in a specific time, in a specific place with specific opportunities. Maybe you were put here for such a time as this. And then Esther replies back to Mordecai. And, you know, I, I wonder if once you hear that, if some people would just put their superhero cape on and say, okay, here I go. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go save these people. These are my people. I'm going to go save them. And that's not what Esther does. Esther knew she couldn't do it by herself. She didn't have like this savior complex. She wasn't trying to be a superhero. Instead, she invites the people she is advocating for to participate with her in whatever ways that they can. And so she asks them to pray, and she asks them to fast for her. She establishes a community around her, and she moves forward in community. And I'm struck by the fact that their stories are her stories, that their stories become intertwined. And so as we read through the book of Esther, I feel like God has some powerful messages in there for us. God worked powerfully through Esther and Mordecai to save the Jews. God used the courage of just a few people to speak out for the many who had no platform to speak for themselves. And and God elevated Esther. Esther, who was an orphan in a foreign land, God elevated her to the position of Queen of Persia. And then she was given the opportunity to use her privileged position to seek justice and to do good and to speak out for those who needed it. I'm reminded of Isaiah and Proverbs. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. And so we see as you finish reading Esther, you see that Esther did this and God saved her people. And so today as we as we think about this story I want to ask us a question. I want to invite us to consider a question. Who are our people? Who are your people? Who are who are my people? Who are our people together? Are they Americans? Are those my people? Are they Christians? Those are my people, maybe? Are they the people that look like me? Are they the people that live near me? Are they the people who do the same things I do and who have the same hobbies and interests? Like, who are, who are my people? Who are your people? Who, who are our people? And Jesus was asked a very similar question. In Luke ten, an expert of the law comes to Jesus, and the expert knew I was to love he was to love God and he was to love his neighbor as himself. But the story says in trying to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Yeah, but, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? I know I'm supposed to love God, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a Jewish man who is robbed on the way, on the road to Jericho. And he's beaten and he's left there half dead. And he tells the story of two religious men, a priest and a Levite walking by him and refusing to stop and help the man. And then he tells of a Samaritan man. And the Samaritans were outcasts of the day. They were despised. They were disliked by the Jews. And he tells the story of a Samaritan man who sees him. And it's the Samaritan man who stops and takes care of him and takes him to the inn and tends to his wounds and pays for further medical care. And then in Luke, verse 36, Jesus poses this question. He says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. It was the Samaritan who stopped to take care of the Jewish man that was half dead on the road. And I feel like the question, who is my neighbor? Is the same question as who are my people? Who are our people? It's not simply the people who look like us or act like us or think like us. But it's all the people that we encounter the diverse and beautiful people we encounter, different people we encounter in our communities, in our, our different spheres of influence. And Jesus modeled in his life who was his neighbor. He had conversations and meals with his neighbors. The tax collectors who cheated people, he ate with them the other members of society labeled sinners, Zacchaeus, the centurion who was a Roman oppressor in in that culture who was concerned about his suffering servant. Jesus healed him. The leper, the guy who was kicked out of society because he was unclean. Jesus not only talked to him, not only healed him, but Jesus touched him when he still had leprosy to show that he was his neighbor. Jairus, the synagogue leader, the Jewish synagogue leader whose daughter had died, Jesus went to his home to heal her. The hemorrhaging woman, again, who was unclean and cast out by society. No one wanted to be around her. Jesus stopped when she touched his cloak and was healed, and Jesus said, my daughter, you are my people, my daughter. The demon-possessed man living in the cemetery all by himself, the Samaritan woman at the well from a people with very different um, thoughts and, and theologies, and he stopped and he talked to her. All the women who followed Jesus, the the poor widow at the temple who was caught in a cycle of poverty, Jesus elevated her as the example of faithfulness. Who does Jesus demonstrate are his people? It was anyone and everyone he encountered, and particularly the voiceless particularly the outcasts, the marginalized, the hurting, the unseen. So today, I just want to ask a question, and I want to invite us to reflect in your life, in your family's life, and in my life, in my family's life, and also in the life of our of our church as a collective. I want us to, to ask the question, who are our people and in this community, who are our people? So yes, it's our friends and our neighbors and the people who enjoy similar interests in us and the people who run in similar circles in, with us. It's all those people and also, and also, it's the outcast and the marginalized and the hurting. So who are those people in the Tri-Cities? I've lived here for for 15 years. And this week I I learned two statistics that were just staggering for me. They were just mind-blowing for me when I heard them. Um, In February of 2017, there were the new immigration laws and border patrol laws were put into place. And um, Google Keeps track of all the searches that are made on the internet, and there's this department called Google Trends, and they they put out reports on what um, is being searched. And in February of 2017, that the week after all those new immigration laws and rules were put into place, they put out a a report on the huge surge. Of internet searches, Google searches on the new immigration laws and the rules. Like who, who is looking up all this information about immigration? And Google Trend reported that an agricultural region in Washington, the region of the Tri-Cities and Kennewick, uh, Tri-Cities and Yakima, excuse me, were the, the number one. Region that searched them, like they, they had the most searches on immigration, was right here nationwide. Nationwide. And I'm, I'm struck by that because this is not simply an issue, but this is something that deeply affects our community, and deeply affects our people, and deeply affects the stories of our people. So that was one statistic that I ran across this week. There was another one that was staggering for me. In the 2017 to 2018 school year, Pasco, Richland, and Kennewick School District reported that 853 students were homeless. In the 2017 to 2018 school year, 853 students were homeless. That's more students than would fit in the school. And I knew we had homeless students in our community. Like, I've been a teacher for nine years. I, I've, I've seen that, but I had no idea of the scope, the, the number of people in our community dealing with this. And these are just two things that I came across this week, and the list could go on and on. Who are the marginalized and hurting in our community? Who are these people? Because these are our people. As a church, as individuals, the people we come across in our community are our people, and our stories are intertwined. So as, as I think about the story of Esther, and as I look at the example of Jesus, I ask, how is this shaping my life? How is this shaping our life? And how is it shaping how we live out our faith? And I want to invite us this week to recognize and to think about who are our people? Who do we claim as our people? Who do we see as our people. And I'd like to challenge us and say that should include the people that we love hanging out with that are similar to us, but it should also include the hurting and the marginalized and the outcast in our community. I'd like to invite us to know our people's stories To read, to have conversation, to engage as a listener, to know our people's stories. And I believe as we make ourselves available to engage our people, like Esther, God will give us opportunities to advocate for our people, to be a voice, to empower, and to learn from each other. I think this is a big part of what it means to be a church to see people, and to see people as our people, and then together to move forward. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much for your love. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy. Lord, we thank you so much for your your scripture and the story of Esther and the example we see in Jesus as he talks to people. And Lord, as we ask questions, I pray that you would help us to ask the right questions. And I pray that you would help us to find um, just the courage to to wrestle with some of these questions like who who are our people? And how do we engage? Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a light, a light for you in our community. And Lord, that it wouldn't be about us trying to do something grand or us trying to save, or but but God, it would be us submitting to you as we seek your will, and God, we know that the hurting and the marginalized and the outcast are close to your heart. And so I pray that you would teach us to see them as our people because we're all in this together. And God, I pray that you would provide opportunities to speak and opportunities to encourage, opportunities, Lord maybe even more importantly than to speak, opportunities to listen this week to the stories of our people here in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we leave here today, may we have eyes to see our people. May we have ears to listen to each other's stories and experiences May we tell narratives that humanize people. And as we advocate for each other, may we co-create new narratives in which justice and healing and love can be present. Have a wonderful week.